This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be breaking down Zoom Info. Founded as Discover Org in 2007, Zoom Info is a go-to-market software and data solution for B2B sales. When a sales rep gains access to Zoom Info, they gain access to a database with over 130 million contacts. The Zoom Info platform assists in finding potential customers, contacting those potential customers, and refining each phase of the workflow. To help break down Zoom Info, I'm joined by its CEO, Henry Shook. Henry founded Discover Org and acquired Zoom Info in 2019. During our conversation, we cover how Zoom Info differs from traditional CRM businesses, its unique gross margin profile, their special go-to-market muscle, and Henry's approach to M&A. As a founder, I love stories about bootstrap businesses, and Henry's does not disappoint. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Zoom Info. All right, Henry, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Hey, Jesse, good to see you. Good to see you too. So you are the CEO and founder of Zoom Info. It's a 20 billion market cap company. Many of our listeners, I'm guessing, haven't heard about it. So let's just start at the beginning. What is Zoom Info and give us a sense for its scale. Zoom Info is a software platform that helps sellers and marketers identify their next best customer. And then it gives them the tools and technology to be able to engage with them in a digital way. So what it starts with is a really robust data foundation of businesses and people at those businesses who make decisions, contact information for those people, and then software to actually engage with them, and signals that come through that tell sellers and marketers when the right time is to engage with those buyers. From a scale perspective, we just released our Q1 revenue numbers. It's about $153 million in the quarter. So you can think of that as sort of an annualizes over $600 million revenue. And we have about 2,000 employees. It's worldwide. And we have over 20,000 customers. We cover and publish information on 100 million companies worldwide and 130 million business professionals worldwide. To give you a sense of when we founded the business, our first MVP that we took to market had 10,000 business professionals and 1,000 companies. And so many orders of magnitude more than that that we covered today. But the first product we took to market, just 10,000 people versus 130 million and 1,000 companies versus the 100 million we cover today. Wow, that's massive. Talk about the problem that Zoom Info solves. If I'm a probably a salesperson or business professional, I'm having a problem. What does it solve? And then talk a little bit about the actual product. What does it look like? What do I do with it? Yeah, so I'm a salesperson. Every salesperson has a key function, which is to go find new business for my company. We help B2B sellers, so sellers who sell to other businesses, identify who those customers might be 
and then give you the information about who at those companies would be making a buying decision for your product or service. And then we give you a bunch of signal around when I should be contacting those people, when they're in market for my potential product or service, when they've received funding, when something's happened in their business, that is a trigger for you to sell your product or solution into it. The analog seller lived in a world where they drove past an office building and said, oh, the sign on the building, I should try to sell to that person. They didn't understand all the companies in their territory. They didn't understand who the business decision makers were at those companies. They didn't have the information at their fingertips to get a hold of those decision makers. And then they didn't have the software technology to automate the pipeline building every single day that they have to come in and do. And what ZoomInfo does as a product is it gives them that data first that they need to do their jobs. And then it connects that data to the system that they use or systems that we offer that allow them to then engage with those potential customers through digital technology, through emailing, through calling, through display ads. And so give salespeople the tools they need to do their core part of their job, which is to sell to new customers. Yeah, I love that. In my head, I imagine like the scene in the Matrix where they like download Spanish language or karate, and it's like now you're a salesperson. And you download when did this person raise funding, or the new there's a new CMO. It's just downloaded into the salesperson's brain as opposed to doing it manually. There's too much information today for a sales rep to do this manually. There's so much happening within a business that you're trying to sell to that it's next to impossible to keep track of all of those CEO changes, CIO changes, new locations opening, new funding rounds, new technologies being added to a company's stack when they're doing research on your potential product or service. And you can't keep track of that on five accounts, much less 200 accounts. When you're doing your job, getting that information fed to you that says, hey, this company just did something that looks like all of your other best customers. Go reach out to them right now. And here's who you reach out to. And here's what the rest of their technology stack looks like. Go do that. It's like the right data, the right level of intelligence and sort of filtering of that data signal and then even the right places putting it all together. Yep. The right time. And timing is really everything in sales. And so being in the right place at the right time with the right person inside of a company, that's really what we're delivering to salespeople. Is there a kind of a classic case study that you like to talk to people about when you're describing the business you could share with us? I can bring it into like a consumer-friendly description. But let's say that you just got a cell phone and it's basically a black box. It doesn't have anything in it, no contacts, no apps. And you have to go gather all of that information on who you're going to call, who you're going to text, but the cell phone doesn't come with any of it. And then, so let's say that a service existed that helped keep your cell phone filled with all of the contact information for everybody that you know. It constantly updated that information. So it reflected new jobs, when friends moved, when their birthdays are. And then as you met new people, it inserted new contacts, new numbers, new emails. It kept you on track for everybody's birthdays, their anniversaries, their promotions, their kids' names, news about what was happening in their lives. And then it sent you an email or a pre-set text to send to them to congratulate them or to let them know that you're thinking about them in those key moments. And then let's say it also helped you find the perfect people to build relationships with. You're looking for a new friend or a tennis partner or whatever. It could come to you and say, hey, we know you're looking for a tennis partner. Here are the people that live around you who would be great tennis partners. And it did all of that in an automated way. 
We do that at scale for businesses looking for new customers. And so you would get a cell phone that's filled with all of the right people to buy your products or services. It would tell you exactly when to contact them. It would tell you when you're selling this product, who to contact, when you're selling that product, who to contact. And all of that information changes because the business world is constantly changing. It's going to keep that all updated in real time. There are a number of really interesting business case studies from in the SMB to the enterprise. In the SMB, we worked in the middle of the pandemic with a company called Tentcraft. Tentcraft built tents for outdoor events. You can imagine the pandemic hit last March and every single event on the face of the earth disappeared. No more events. And they built this great business in Michigan that was building these tents. If you went to a Taylor Swift concert, it was the tent that was in the background. And they came to us and they said, look, we have 50 employees here in Traverse City, Michigan. We're going to lose this business. It was growing. It was on a tear. And now we don't know what to do. But we think that these tents could work as outdoor COVID-19 testing tents that hospitals could use. The problem is we've always sold to event managers and event organizers. We have no idea like how to sell to a hospital, how many hospitals there are, who the decision makers at those hospitals are, how to get a hold of them. All of a sudden, overnight, they have to shift industries and shift who they're selling to. And what do they do? And so we were able to give them access to our healthcare data set, which highlighted every hospital in the United States, who the decision makers were, access to our technology tools that let you email and call them in an automated way. And in the first week after they launched a program, they sold to a hospital in New Jersey, then a hospital in Texas, then a hospital in Pennsylvania. And in April, was their best month in the history of the company selling that tent to other hospitals. And that's a business that pre-Zoom info, it just kind of goes away. It just lays off all of the employees. It waits for events to come back. There are all these fits and starts along the way. And the ability to take data and technology and insights and then go into a completely different space overnight, that's what Zoom info powers. That's great. One of the cool things about the business, we'll get into this a little bit later, is maybe they had an account manager, a person helping them navigate a little bit this. But generally speaking, that's a replicatable automated database system. It's not like no one had to go do any legwork for that to happen for the most part. Totally. This is the coolest thing I think about Zoom Info. In corporate speak, it's quick time to value. In reality, if you think about the spectrum of software that gets deployed at a company, there is very complicated ERP software at one end, and then there's Microsoft Excel at the other end. You can you implement Microsoft Excel instantly. ERP takes months, long time to get value. We are much closer to the Microsoft Excel side of the universe than we are to the ERP side. And I think what I had a realization about is what we sell, which is software with data at the foundation, is as close to something tangible that you could actually touch in software because the data is flowing through the application layer. So it's not just workflow automation or a special process that makes something more efficient. It's as close to something you can put your hands on in software than any other software that gets sold. I tell our sales team this, we sell a software product where the average ACV is north of $30,000. And there are dozens of deals every month that we sell same day. So someone comes in, takes a look at it, 
understands the value and goes, yeah, like today, can you send me the DocuSign today? We'll buy it today. And there just isn't other software that's like that, that someone can really see the value, understand how it's going to make an instant impact and then buy it the same day. Like go do that with cybersecurity software or ERP or whatever else. It just doesn't have that quick time to value and easy understanding of the value that it provides. And so our average sales cycles are sub 30 days. And so it's a really quick sales cycle. And I think it's because of that. It's easy implementation. It's as close to something tangible and software as you can see. And the value of driving more sales in a business can't be understated. One of my favorite parts of these episodes is talking about the founding story. And and it's super cool because you can tell it to us first party. I also love bootstrapping, as you might know. And so Go back to the beginning. Tell us how you started it. What did you see? What motivated you in this direction? And kind of take us through the big milestones, why you first took capital, some of the M&A things you've done to help us understand the story. I was raised by a single mom. When I went off to college, she gave me $5,000 as my college fund, which was basically the remnants of a life insurance policy that she had been paying into. She said, that's your college fund. Good luck. I went to college after my first year, I ran out of that $5,000 and I needed to find a job. And so I ended up landing in a really serendipitous moment. It's 2001 and I land at a early entrant in the SaaS space. And 2001, there weren't very many software as a service companies. You know, Salesforce was founded just a few years earlier. And he was selling access to an online database of IT decision makers and selling it to technology sales and marketing people who use that information to go to market. And the business was like on fire. I'd hear him, it was just us, me and the founder. And I'd hear him on calls going, yeah, yeah, it's $18,700. And then he'd wait and they'd go like discount. And he'd go, we don't do any discounts. And I was like, hold, five minutes later, there's a fax coming through with a signed order form. It was unbelievable. And we grew that business from about $300,000 a year when I got there in 2001 to just under $5 million of ARR four years later. But it was $5 million of ARR, and there were just a couple college kids working at the company. And there was no additional investment into the business. And so I couldn't see a future there. I could see making a lot of money there. I just couldn't see a future that I could be really proud of there. And so I went off to law school, decided I wanted to be a lawyer because it was like a career that had some cachet. And I went in after my first year in law school, a friend of mine who I had recruited at that business called me and said, hey, look, let's start something that's like this, but doesn't directly compete. And I was in the middle of my final exams in my first year of law school. And I said, look, I'm not really interested in doing that, especially not right now. But if you're really serious about it, call me in three weeks when I'm done with finals. Assuming like, you know, your friends who have like crazy ideas, I just thought it would go away. And so three weeks later, he called me and said, I still want to do this. I want to do it with you. I want to be 50-50 partners. And I said, okay, well, quit your job and move to Columbus, Ohio then. And he's like, okay, I'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this thing. You called his bluff. <laughs> I told you, or he called my bluff. Yeah. <laughs> and so he moved to Columbus. We started the company, built the website, started building data ourselves. It was just me and him. So we'd spend all of the day building the MVP hired a third-party contractor to build the SaaS interface. We both put $25,000 on our credit cards. 
And then about seven months later, had a minimally viable product that we took to market. We sold our first deal a month after that to a publicly traded staffing company. I remember actually being at home during Christmas break, my mom's house at home, like sitting at my desk in my old bedroom, calling into the procurement office at this company called Comsys and saying, hey, we have an invoice. Are you going to pay it soon? Have they signed off on the purchase order? And that was our first deal. And we just invested all of the money that we made in the company back into the business. And the business grew profitably, obviously, because we had no other money. So there was no other way to build the business other than to build it profitably. And it grew fast in the space. We took no outside funding for the next seven years and grew the business to about $25 million of ARR and 50%-ish EBITDA margins. And then we took our first outside capital in 2014. We brought in a private equity firm, TA Associates, in 2014. And it served in two ways. It was funding for the business. It was also, there were secondary dollars that came to myself and Kirk as part of that. And it really like took a lot of the pressure off of your entire net worth and future is tied into the operations of the business. And you make much less optimal decisions than when that's the situation. And so we had this outside capital, we had an exit, we felt really good, and we were able to really start investing behind the business in 2014. And you really saw an inflection point in the business coming out of that investment, built a board and continued growing the business, had an opportunity to do some M&A. We actually, in 2015, acquired that business that I worked at in college, which was uh, fun and interesting. And then in 2017, did an acquisition of a competitor. A company was called Rain King. And we were sort of like both founded at the same time, both sold into similar markets. We were very competitive with them and made that acquisition in 2017. And that really changed the trajectory of the business. And so a year later, we brought on the Carlisle Group as a second private equity firm. And then in 2019, we went out, we raised debt to make an acquisition of Zoom Info. This is the confusing part. The old business was called Discover Org. Discover Org was the business I founded. We acquired Zoom Info and then changed the name to Zoom Info. We did that in February 2019, put the two companies together, and then IPO'd in June of 2020. Wow. I always think of it like levels in video games, like were there big pieces or inflection points that you remember distinctly where you said, man, this was a problem. This was a problem. This is a problem. And then we figured it out and boom. And then this was a problem. This was a problem. It sounds like competition or consolidation was one. Were there other ones that you remember that through that journey of building the business? Well, there are a couple competition for sure. And so when we acquired ranking, we were able to put the two businesses together. That was a clear inflection point in the business. And it showed that we could do M&A and we executed from just an integration perspective and a strategy perspective pretty flawlessly in that acquisition. And so it gave the board and our investors a lot of confidence that that could be a muscle that we flex in the future. And so that was a big inflection point because it changed the strategy of the future business. And then when we acquired Zoom Info, I couldn't build a great engineering and product team. And I have all sorts of excuses for why, but I couldn't do it. I tried really hard and I would write sort of a vision for what I wanted our platform to do. And it would just sit in my Google Docs and get cobwebs on it because I was never able to scale that team. And then when we acquired Zoom Info, it came with this absolutely world-class 
engineering and R&D team. And so all of a sudden, every idea that, and I went like and brushed off all of these requirements documents that I had and brought it to the new team going like, this is too hard, right? It's hard. It's too hard, right? And they'd be like, no, we can build that in. Just give us three months. We'll have that built. What you see in Zoom Info today is a lot of the vision that I had for Discover Org in 2015, 2016, but never built a good enough engineering and product team to make that vision come to life. And so that's a huge inflection point for the business. All of a sudden, we could build new solutions and go to market with new products in a way that we otherwise were just trapped. We were just trapped. Help the listener and myself understand the data market. It's not a market I think people wake up every day thinking about. How do you define it? What are the boundaries of it? And who are the different players inside of it, the way you view it? First, data's kind of been around forever. Longest standing player in the pure data space is a company called Dun & Bradstreet, which I think if I remember correctly, like Abraham Lincoln actually worked for the company. At some point, he actually was like a writer, a credit writer for Dun & Bradstreet years and years in the 1800s. People have been selling sort of business and credit data for centuries. Today, most of that has moved from like an offline analog world into one that's digital. The players that you see today, Dun & Bradstreet is still around. It sells primarily credit data into businesses. I think LinkedIn changed the way people think of business information because pre-LinkedIn, the people who worked at a company were just a black box. You didn't know. And so I'm a seller who's my territory is Michigan and I have all these Fortune 1000 companies in there and I don't know who the director of IT is, the VP of IT. No one knows who those people are at the company sort of pre-LinkedIn in the early 2000s. And I think when LinkedIn came to market, people just started seeing what the power data could have in their ability to identify decision makers and then connect with them. And so today, I think of the data space as like LinkedIn, Dun & Bradstreet is there. There are a bunch of point solutions underneath there People sell technographic data, technology data on what companies are using in their technology stack. People sell intent data or what people are researching on the B2B web. They have location data. How many locations does a company have? Where are they all located? You think about on the consumer side, Yelp is a data business. It's collecting information on all of the different businesses, retail-facing businesses and reviews. I think... There are a lot of companies out there where data is actually the product, but then it gets delivered through a unique application layer. In the business data space, there are a bunch of companies you probably haven't heard of. In the consumer space, you think of companies like Yelp or TripAdvisor or Expedia, and those are fundamentally data businesses. And who do you view as your competitive set? And how do you think about where you guys win and compete? The cheap answer here is that we are playing in a major white space today. We have 20,000 customers, and we believe the white space for our product is 700,000 businesses. And so we don't really compete with some big player out there. Most of our clients use LinkedIn in one way or another, but they're almost never making a decision like, well, it's either LinkedIn or Zoom Info. And we're expanding sort of the 
beyond data. And we spent the last two years building this application layer that lets our customers do more with the data. And so as we continue to kind of build out that application layer, there are new competitors in one area of the business. Like I I mentioned, companies, there are data companies that sell technographic information. We sell technographic information too. We just surround it with a lot more. And so we may compete on that data point somewhere, but no one who's doing like what we're doing for the sales profession. It used to be that somebody would be making a decision between one of those three companies and you guys have consolidated them all. Yes. Yeah. And when we bought ZoomInfo, what was interesting there was ZoomInfo had been around for 20 years. It was founded in 2000 and had for years just struggled to get a foothold in the market. And then all of a sudden, well, when we acquired Ranking, I wrote this memo that basically said, hey, if I was ZoomInfo, I would do a lot of damage to our company. Like I would know exactly the play to run to beat us up. And this is what I would do. So we should really consider figuring that out. And here's how we'll compete in the meantime. But then I started going and visiting customers. And when I go to customers, they'd go, hey, we love Discover Org. And it's really great for our enterprise teams. But I've got these big SMB teams and these big mid-market teams and they love Zoom Info. And so we bought Zoom Info too. And we think it's actually pretty good in the enterprise too. I was actually in Salt Lake City. I went to like six meetings like this, back to back to back to back. And I walked out of those meetings like, okay, I think we need to go buy Zoom Info because it does broaden out our offering where customers love us for the enterprise and the quality of our information. They love Zoom Info for the mid-market and SMB and the coverage that they get from Zoom Info. And if you could put those two things together, you have kind of unlimited white space. And that was right. When we made that acquisition, we saw it like instantly after that acquisition. So yeah, that's awesome. I want to unpack some of the M&A strategy stuff in a minute or two. I want to set a little bit of the foundation for the business. And so maybe help us think about the PL of Zoom Info and maybe particularly tying it to differences or similarities to a traditional SaaS business. I don't know if there are different costs of sales because of data and other things, but just walk through kind of the typical, how you think of the PL and what are the big metrics and things you pay attention to in the business. In our cohort of companies that we're compared to in the public market, public market investors kind of care about two things in our business, growth, how fast are we growing, and then profitability, how profitable are we? In some companies in the public market, they don't care so much about profitability. They care mainly about growth, but at some point they start caring about operating margins. And so in Q1, we were $153 million on the top line, and then we grew 50%. And what are the cost of sales in your business? So the gross margin is 89% which is really good for a software or a SaaS company. I mean, realistically, there are puts and takes for data versus software. Like we have much more cost to curate the data and maintain the data and keep the data really high quality. But then we have less professional services and support we have to do to customize a software product to go into a company. And that's likely because the data, as you were saying earlier, the software and the data are sort of a single product effectively. Right. There's no configuration. I mean, there's not a lot of configuration, not a lot of setup. There's not a lot of the things that other software businesses tend to deal with. That's exactly right. In that cost of sales, in my head, at least, like, I don't know, do you buy that data? Do you scrape that data? Like, how are you actually getting that data? And what are the hard costs associated with it? 
we buy data, we gather data through public sources. We also have two contributory data models. One is we have a freemium model where people can get limited free access to Zoom info in exchange for their email contacts. And so if you ever Googled somebody and you see Zoom info come up as one of the top results, if you want free access to Zoom info, you could trade your email contacts for that free access. And then we have a customer contributory network. And so a portion of our customers share data with us that we cleanse, validate, and send back to them. And we kind of take the exhaust data off of that to help cleanse and manage the data set. So for example, if you use a marketing automation system, you're going to share bounced data with us and confirmation email data with us. And we're going to use that to cleanse the 100 million records in our system. If they've bounced three times from your marketing automation system, we're going to take those people out and then cleanse the database. And then we have literally a million other unique sources that come in to Zoom Info. And the thing that sits in the middle of all of that is this evidence-based machine learning algorithm that makes sense of all of the information. You can see one person in seven people's CRM with different information. You see another person come through eight people's email contacts with different information. And so that machine learning algorithm is consolidating them, connecting them to an individual person, and then publishing the most accurate version of that person into the platform. And so a lot of money behind data science and machine learning in that core engine. It sounds like there's a hidden network effect in addition to kind of a learning effect. It was funny, we had Invisalign on the show and one of the points they were making is the more teeth they do, the better their machines and systems get. And it almost sounds similar that in addition to the fact that you were saying the more customers you guys add, the better your data will get because you're seeing these signals from all these other places. Yes, 100%. We get signals earlier, the bigger the contributory network becomes. We're able to cleanse the data more broadly, the bigger the contributory network becomes. Today, we see 100 million contact record events every day. And so we see unique contact record events, 100 million of them, that it might be a different email, it might be a title, it might be someone's a new job, a new location. And so really making sense of all of that information and publishing the best record, the power of the network, every additional customer who contributes, every additional freemium member who contributes, the data just gets better and better and better. I assume there's no other company on the planet that sees that much, I mean, no B2B sort of business in your world that sees that level of data and scale on a daily basis. Yeah, nobody is geared to gather and cleanse that type of information or focus on this type of information, which is actually like a really interesting part of our market is that building software and technology for salespeople, there just aren't a lot of companies that are doing that. There really aren't companies that are doing that at scale. The last big innovation for the salesperson was Salesforce and cloud-based CRM. And so there aren't really companies that are investing behind what is 15 million salespeople in the United States. And that's a huge market opportunity that we're the biggest player trying to serve. Yeah, that's awesome. Now on the revenue side, I assume, maybe not worth the double click, there's just standard annual ARR contracts. You're selling them in and they're different sizes and scales based on the sale number. Is it seat-based or is it data-based? A combination of both, actually. So it's seat-based, and then it's what we call records under management or enrichment-based as well. And so you may have 100... And this is where we get into the marketing side of the business too. So you may have 100 sellers, and then marketing wants to enrich all of their marketing automation and CRM system as well. They want to take their million records, tie it to Zoom Info, and keep them all up to date 
And so we sell that and then we sell the user seat for the sellers. There are a number of other things that we're bringing to market too, new products that we built, but the core two pieces are that. You were saying the ACV earlier is around $30,000? The ACV is kind of like 30,000 plus. So 30,000 plus, and then most of that is is falling into the gross margins. And then the two big kind of line items, obviously, are sales and marketing and GNA. Can you give us a quick sense for what's inside of those and then how you think about them? Yeah. So sales and marketing is just all of our sales and marketing costs. And so every seller, all of the marketing spend, marketing campaign spend, all the heads inside of sales, marketing, customer success, account management are in the sales and marketing line. We actually think of sales and marketing in terms of sales efficiency. And so how much return do we get for each dollar that we spend on sales and marketing? And so on the new business side, we aim for somewhere between one and a half to two X return for every dollar that we spend on a customer. And then on the retention and growth or account management side, we look for a six to eight X return for every dollar that we spend there. That is another sort of really interesting thing about ZoomInfo is it's a super efficient go-to-market motion. Most software businesses, you put a dollar in, you get like 70 cents out in the first year. We're putting a dollar in and getting one and a half to two X out. In the first year alone? In the first year. Wow. How has your thinking evolved in that over time? I'm willing to bet that it's actually, you used to ask for like a four to one, but now you want to grow faster because <laughs> you're a bootstrapped entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. In the earlier days, I would hold back hiring salespeople because I would go, look, the next person who comes in here is going to be way less efficient than our core people. I'd rather just give them way more opportunities and maximize my return. Our president and COO, a guy named Chris Hayes, came and worked for us about five years ago. And what he helped me see was, he was like, I get it, but this model breaks. There is a point I can show you with data the point at which you've overloaded the sales rep and you're not getting that extra return. You're better off bringing in a less efficient sales rep who ramps over time than giving this person another opportunity because they're not going to give it the attention that it needs. Their conversion rate is going to be lower. And so it was really just getting smart about it with data and understanding like I wasn't doing myself any favors by not adding the next seller. But from a unit economics perspective, our long-term value to customer acquisition cost is well north of 10x and actually closer to 15x. And that really gets driven by that really efficient go-to-market motion that we've put into place. I guess that explains why when you look at your public financials, you've deeply invested in sales and marketing because you're same year payback, but then also a 10x in the future that you're looking into. Yeah, exactly. By the way, if you add the network effect into that, which is even more interesting, it sounds like the bigger, faster you get the better your product effectively gets. Exactly. The better the data becomes, the better the signals become. You mentioned it earlier, and I want to come back to it around the sales cycle and this unique thing where people go same day. You observed it, it sounds like in your first job and it still exists today in the business. Why do you think that is? Or, and how do you guys built the business around that aspect? I think first we're selling to salespeople and we're selling to marketers and they all have a number to hit. And so they come in every day looking for ways to make hitting that number easier. And I think most solutions that exist in the market really are selling to like engineering or IT. 
And that's been sort of what the modern sales forces are geared to sell to, to an IT decision maker or an engineering decision maker. They haven't focused on the sales side of the house. So when a VP of sales or a VP of marketing puts their eyes on Zoom Info, number one, they see a product that was purpose-built for them. And there aren't a lot of those out there. And then they can easily see in their mind the pathway to value with this thing. It's like today, my sellers are doing this work. They're trying to identify prospects. They're trying to figure out who to contact. They're trying to understand their sales territories and who the companies they should be selling to. They're doing it in a very inefficient way. We have a customer that it's the largest HVAC maintenance firm in the world. And the way they go to market is they drive around the downtown urban cores. They walk into buildings and they see who the tenants are there. They write them all down. And then they go back and try to figure out how to sell into those tenants in those buildings. Like in 2020, in 2021, (laughs) (laughs) that VP of sales, when he sits down in a chair and puts his eyes on Zoom info and we say, put in an address, we'll show you all the tenants. We'll show you the director of facilities at all of those companies. And we'll show you the ones who have been researching HVAC maintenance the most in the last six months. It's just hard not to see how much value you get out of that the first day you turn it on for your sellers. Right. I'm sure their head explodes. Yeah, their head explodes. They become very skeptical. (laughs) And then you go, go drive to the address and you can verify my data. You can validate the data. Like, tell us the companies you've sold to over the last couple of months. We'll just show you them inside of Zoom Info. And look, it turns out that six months before they bought your product, we could have told you that they were spiking on research for your types of products. And so you can be in front of that sales cycle. But I think the other thing that's happening is I'm meeting today like 35-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are telling me, I've never worked at a company that doesn't have Discover Org or Zoom Info as part of the standard set of tools. And so these people are now getting into senior sales leadership roles at all sorts of companies across all sorts of industries. And they are digitizing that go-to-market motion when they come in. And they're being looked to to say like, hey, come into this HVAC maintenance firm and make us modern. And so the first thing they're reaching for is Zoom Info because they've become so accustomed to using it. Yeah, it's like a second network effect almost in my head where it's like as they go to more company, it just keeps getting more cross-pollinated. Totally. How do you think you guys are different or what do you think is different about Zoom Info because you're selling to sellers and because of the velocity and those unique aspects of the business? Well, I think the sales cycle is easier for one. I think the ability to connect with your prospect is not something I have to teach I have a bunch of sellers selling to sellers. I don't have to go teach you some like really complicated cybersecurity issue, or I don't have to teach you something super complicated about ERP or hosting. You understand intrinsically, you understand the value of what you're selling. And so it makes it way easier for you to be able to sell to your counterpart on the other end of the line. It's a big difference for us. Four months is the ramp tam for our sales reps. For many companies, it's multiple quarters. One of the key feeders into our account executive title is this sales development rep motion that we have where we can go out, we hire sales reps who are like one year out of college or just out of college. We put them on the phones to respond to inbound leads and to go outbound and prospect for us. And in nine months, we start promoting them into the account executive role. And so we got value out of them in that ramp time. 
And then four months after they've gone into the account executive role, they're fully ramped. 13 months from when you've never sold something until you're an account executive at one of the fastest growing technology companies in the country. That's a really fun promotion to see. It must be amazing for sellers to work there. Their careers accelerate fast. They make money quickly. Like it's the salesperson's dream. A hundred percent. We think it's one of the best places in the world to work as a sales rep. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's go to M&A strategy. So you've mentioned it several times throughout today. I'm making this up, but tell me if this is right. Four or five years ago, you guys were one of two or three players doing this. Probably the most sales and marketing oriented one. Biggest hustlers, I'd guess, just hearing the story. And you looked at the marketplace and you said, man, it's competitive. We lose X number of deals to these other guys. Talk about how did you decide to start buying them? And then how did you actually approach M&A, both strategically from an evaluation perspective? How did you fund it? Help us understand how that all came together. Because it seems to have worked amazingly well, obviously, where we sit today. I think first, if I think about one of the first bigger deals we did, I think we looked around and we said, look, we have another competitor in the space. It's doing something that's largely similar. I bet that if we put the companies together, we could invest behind the things that our customers actually want and then have a much better platform because we'll have a bigger platform to invest from. And so in that first transaction, it was private equity owned, which for what it's worth, when you're doing M&A, you're much more likely to have a successful outcome if there's institutional capital in the company, especially if it's private equity, because their jobs are to buy and sell businesses. Versus like you're dealing directly with the founder of the company, it creates a lot more complexity in your opportunity to actually close a deal. There was a private equity backer there. They were in like their second year of hold. And we were able to come in and say, look, we'll pay you your return threshold that you probably aren't going to get for another two years at this business. We'll pay for it now. We're the only company that can do that because there are significant synergies in putting the two companies together. And so there are financial synergies. When you put two companies that do largely the same thing together, you don't need two people doing one, the same function anymore. There are growth synergies. One of the big strategic levers that we see in our, in our M&A motion is our go-to-market team. And so when we find companies that don't have a very sophisticated go-to-market motion that aren't truly optimized in the way that they get clients, they're not doing one and a half to two X efficiency or a 15 X LTV to CAC. Those are great fits for us because we say like, look, we can flex that strategic muscle, come in, make it a better go-to-market motion and unlock tremendous value inside of the organization right out of the gates. And so we look for companies where the go-to-market motions line up. And so in both our big acquisitions, Ranking, Zoom Info, and most recently, Course.ai, we really felt like we could leverage the go-to-market motion to accelerate growth within those companies. That's a key piece. I want to quantify that a little bit. Like, I assume you paid X multiple, but in your guys' internal models, it was more like Y multiple. Talk about that, just how you actually quantify that. Yeah, I mean, it is exactly like that. We bought Rain King, it was a $40 million ARR business, growing kind of 25 to 30% a year. On the bottom line, it was doing $10 million of EBITDA. Our model said we're going to come in and within six months, we're going to make it instead of a $10 million EBITDA business, we're going to make it a $30 million EBITDA business. And we're going to accelerate growth on the top line. And that's before we talk about all of the synergies we're going to get in the existing Discover Org customer base or Zoom Info customer base. We were able to take what was a 45-person sales team. We took it down to 15 sellers. They sold more in the first year than the 45 sellers sold in the year before. And then we grew the business faster. We made it much more profitable. 
pre the acquisition of Ranking, the business was probably worth $600 million as a standalone. And you can think of it as one year later being worth more like $2 billion. That's awesome. To pair it back a little bit, it's we know this business. We have a very capable sales and marketing engine. We can identify assets and consolidate assets such that we can then turn around and create more than even two plus two equals 10 or something in this case, because of it's not just a financial buyer buying up businesses or something. It's a real, someone who really understands the business. What is the thing that you say no to in M&A? How have you gotten to the point where you say, I think I get what works when you say yes to, what do you say no to? Often I say no to solutions that are too complicated, too technical. I know who our sellers are and they sell something that is largely uncomplicated and easy to see the value of. There are lots of really good and interesting solutions out in the market that are just too complicated for me to take advantage of. And so I'll see a solution and I'll go like, in order for me to enable all of my sellers to be able to sell this, it would be next to impossible. It's too technical. It's too complicated. They'll never be able to actually sell this very, very complicated or technical solution. And so I look for solutions that I know I can enable across all of my sellers. And I know that I can sell to all of our customers. Our customer base is a customer base that we can leverage. It's 20,000 customers. They obviously care about digitizing their go-to-market motion. If we have a solution that helps that, I want to be able to sell into the largest swath of those 20,000 customers as I can. So the other thing I'll say no to is a solution that only plays in a small segment of the customer base. Like you can buy this, but you can only sell it to companies that sell to healthcare IT decision makers. It's like not that interesting. It's a small portion of our customer base. Or you can buy this, but it only sells to the super enterprise. Probably not as interesting as something that I can buy and sell to all of our customer base. And so this recent acquisition we did of Chorus.ai, which is a call recording, call transcribing tool for go-to-market teams. We use it. All of our sellers use it. It's really simple to understand, hey, we're going to record and transcribe all your calls. And then you can go do instant coaching on the key moments in those calls. And when I think about sales teams, the only other thing that's universal across them besides having to identify new business is they have to onboard and train and hire new sales reps. We can own both sides of that equation, both sides of the universal actions that sales teams have to take. And our sales reps can sell it. It's not very technical. It's also a short sales cycle. And so all of those things line up from a go-to-market perspective. And it gives you the ability to pay more than what any other sort of financial buyer might value the business at. And it's almost another network effect that comes to mind, which is because you have a bunch of sellers and you're also selling to sellers, you know what sellers, you just look at what they're using or things that they find interesting and there's your M&A pipeline. Totally, 100%. If we're using it in our sales motion, it's very likely to make it into our M&A pipeline. Yeah. One last question on the M&A front. So when you were a $600 million company, obviously it worked out really well. How did you fund that? Did you use debt capital? Like you had EBITDA? Like what was the funding strategy for M&A? We would go out and raise debt. And so we raised debt to make the ranking acquisition. We raised debt in the private markets. It was not very difficult to raise the debt because the business was really profitable and had a lot of room. But then when we acquired Zoom Info, we actually had to go get like rated by Moody's and S&P, which was like only a thing I saw in movies. <laughs> and so we had to go get the debt rated. And then we had to go through a whole bigger debt process because we were raising a billion dollars of debt to make the acquisition. 
but we raised debt for that one as well. That's awesome. If you could raise debt and access it as a private company, can you talk just for a second on why go public? What motivated that? Yeah. So the business after we acquired Zoom Info really took off and it was another big inflection point in the business. And when the investors started looking at the business, they said, look, this would be a super unique company on the public markets. It's growing, it's profitable. There's a huge total addressable market in front of it. And there are real meaningful increases in valuation on the public market versus the private market. And it gave us an opportunity to clean up the cap structure because we had raised all of this debt. We were servicing it, but it would be nice to raise some equity to pay that debt down. And then we're a solution that pre-going IPO, I remember one of our biggest clients, it's a large telecom business. The enterprise account manager said, hey, our CEO is going to be in your city this week. He'd love to come meet you. And they said, you have a startup company. We don't meet with anybody who's under the age of 45, literally. Oh my God. And so I couldn't even get meetings with like senior level (laughs) executives at companies spending like a million dollars with us or more. When we went public, it completely changed. We can get meetings with senior people. They want to hear how we're helping other companies. It gave real validity to what we were building. And we knew we would get that extra lift by doing it. But it does become incumbent on you to leverage that validity, right? You, I have to leverage it. Our president and COO has to go out and use that new currency to get the right meetings and craft a big vision that we can go deliver on for our clients. But those were the big reasons. Yeah. If you're going to have to pay the cost of going public, you might as well get the full benefit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that the anecdote around the COVID story, which I loved. Is there any other notable things that COVID did or how the business reacted during COVID that are worth highlighting? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is for years when I would meet with investors, their big sort of downside risk story was what happens to this business in a recession or a downturn? Like, we don't know if this tool is critical enough to keep. What our theory was, and it had never been really tested, was in a downturn, people don't stop investing in sales tools that help them identify new customers. They keep those because it's the one thing that can help them get through the downturn. And so there were a bunch of people around who were like, well, we're about to find out what happens in a downturn. And by the way, we were supposed to IPO March 26th of 2020. (laughs) So like the number one thing, maybe probably the biggest thing that investors were worried about was about to come like full force at us right before the IPO. And then it happened and the business didn't really change that much. You had a little bit of a slowdown in the enterprise space where enterprises said like, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're not going to spend more. You had an acceleration in the SMB in the mid-market space where companies were like, we got to figure out how to get through this. And so we want to continue to invest in these types of tools or we need to pivot. And so we need this data and technology to help us pivot. And so I would say the first few months were like headwinds in the business. And then ultimately those kind of went away and we went back to kind of the demand environment we had immediately pre-pandemic. Now, To be intellectually honest here, it's nice for a recession to come with a complete halt of business travel for our business. Not every recession comes with every plane grounded and no travel to your customers. This one did. And so you did have this added benefit of the fact that all of a sudden sellers who were out in the field finding new opportunities had to do it from behind their computers in their homes and were able to deliver the insight that they need to do that from home. 
And in a Zoom first world, I got to imagine like, did you see sales velocity actually go up? You saw sales velocity go up on the new business side and you saw it flatten on the current customer side. Got it. You can talk to someone and why wouldn't you do a demo on the first call? You know, they're at their computer, you're at your computer, but we've seen that. We're like, why are we even describing this five minutes into the call? Let's show you to you. We've just noticed that cycles have totally changed. Man, this has been so much fun, Henry. Let's start to talk about the forward-looking stuff just briefly. If you're thinking about your business, and this is a fun one to ask you directly, and in, in 10 years, the market cap doubles, what drove that? Why did that happen? I just think it's us executing on a really big white space and then continuing to develop and release software for salespeople. We just think that's such a big market that's underinvested in and we'll continue to execute across it. I don't think we need any sort of special event to double the market cap. Are there any trends or sort of opportunities that you see in particular that you want to make sure the organization's focused on? Yeah, I think the biggest one is if you think about 20 years ago, companies made big bets on CRM systems and they went all in on the CRM. And they sort of imagined that that investment was going to turn into digitally transform their businesses. And what we're realizing today and what our customers are telling us is, look, we love CRM, but we really want to turn it from a system of record to a system of insights. And can you help us do that? Because we know we're all in on CRM. It's not going anywhere. But we really want to be able to have our sellers want to go into CRM because it's going to give them the next piece of insight about their accounts. We activate CRM in that way. And so I think over the next 20 years, as people go, hey, the biggest part of the value of CRM is the data that gets put into CRM. And we better really think about that as an infrastructural investment that will drive a lot of our growth for many years to come. It's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of salespeople, like as we move up that as a society or business society. Totally. Any other big opportunities? Like you mentioned, obviously, AI and data science. Do you think that's critical to the, the story in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, look, I think we're leveraging AI across the business and the data collection and the voice analytics on the core side. There's AI embedded everywhere. I think today we live in a world where AI by itself is not very effective. When you combine AI with humans, we have 300 researchers in our Vancouver, Washington office who augment the AI. And so essentially human-assisted AI, I think, is what's going to be around for the next, call it five years. I think it'll be a big part of what we continue to invest behind. I think if you ask the other question, could the market cap cut in half? And I spent some time thinking about like what could possibly be it. And so I'll give you a futuristic thought. Could AI replace the sales rep? In a lot of buying scenarios where it's just driven by AI that identifies the next customer and interacts with them, if that was to happen, I think that could have a, an effect on our growth ability. And you actually had Gartner a few years ago said the number of salespeople was going to like fall drastically by 2025. They made this big deal about it. None of that's happened. And none of it's come to fruition. I actually think you guys become like the Facebook of B2B in that case. You have the algorithm. It works to sell to sellers, but if you could just get me the meeting or get me the sale, great, because you have all the intelligence layer. What are other things that keep you up at night or threats you see in the business? It doesn't sound like LinkedIn or any of these competitors keep you up at night. Is there What does keep you up at night? It really isn't competitors that keep me up at night. It's really reality. It's you know at our level, the only excuse for not growing and not growing efficiently is execution. And that really means, did I get the right people in the seats to get us the outcome that we deserve? And 
So that keeps me up at night because when you're public and you have a big market cap and you can go hire anybody, basically, like you could get anybody to come work at Zoom Info. And so if you didn't go out and get the very best talent for the different roles in the company, and that stalls your ability to grow or reach your potential, that's just my fault. Like I didn't make the right decisions on talent. I didn't leverage the public company nature of our business. Where like 10 years ago, you were doing the best with what you could get. You were taking like sales reps and trying to make them great. You were coaching every executive in your organization up. Today, I just have to go find them, recruit them and bring them in. And so I would say just optimizing for talent is something that keeps me up. It's like talent at a new scale and execution at a new scale. There's just no excuses, right? There's just no excuses anymore. You've got a big market in front of you. You have a solution that people love. Your ability to grow the business is just you. And so you can't really hide from it. It's just execution. It's your ability. Your ability is on display every single day. This is a sidebar, but are there ways you personally invest in your abilities or try to grow yourself that you think every other CEO founder should be doing? I have an executive coach. And so I talk to him and he keeps me honest about goals and things that I'm trying to accomplish and the people around me. But I think a lot of it today is around like keeping my mind right. And I exercise every day and I don't exercise for any like vanity reason or really to be in shape. I exercise for my mind. That's really it. And then I meditate just about every day and it just keeps my head clear and the pressures of being a public company and executing are significantly deteriorated by a good workout and a little bit of meditation. What about data, Henry? The Facebooks of the world and there's all these new things happening, iOS, GDPR. Is that a big risk for your guys' business? Is just all the data stuff that we're hearing about every day? Yeah. So I think the first thing I would tell you is it's important to think about the type of data that we collect. And the type of data that we collect is business contact information on people. There are lots of information about companies. But on people, we collect business contact information, which is the information you would find on somebody's business card. We believe that to be, and not just us, but many regulatory bodies believe that to be the least sensitive type of information that's collected. In fact, if you go and look at a lot of the privacy legislation, the law in Virginia, the law in California, the law in Washington State, Canada's PEPITA, they specifically carve out business contact information as non-sensitive information. It's logical, right? Like if you were walking down the street and you dropped your business card, and then 10 minutes later, you realized you had dropped your business card, you're not going to stop in your tracks and double back to the place that you dropped your business card to go pick it up because there's sensitive information on it. There's just not sensitive information on it. Right. And you would do that if it was your credit card or your driver's license or something. Your credit card or your browsing history or your healthcare information, you would go back and pick that up. And that's what the laws are created to protect. And they're also designed in a way with this business contact information exemption to specifically allow that information to continue to drive the B2B economy. And so that's one thing. And you can see that happen all across the different legislation that's coming out. Now, that being said, we take data privacy, obviously, really seriously because we collect data. And so one of the things that we did when the GDPR came out is we started what was called a notice and choice program. We're the only company in the industry that does this, but we proactively go out to every individual whose information we've collected and we give them notice that we've collected the information, what information we've collected, who it's going to be shared with. And then we have an automated 
software that they can go into, see that information, update it, remove it, put in new information. So we built that for GDPR in the EU. And then we said, you know what? Let's just apply it to every person across those 130 million business professionals. Let's give them all notice that we've collected their information. And so we went and did that. And so we've sent communication to every person we've collected information on, telling them we've collected their information. We do it in near real time now when we collect a new piece of information. And we give them that opportunity to have it removed or updated from our platform. And we're the only people doing that. So we feel really good about that. The other sort of interesting analogy here is if you think about the private companies that collect the most sensitive information on you, think about that. It is for sure the credit bureaus. They know every time you've missed a payment, every college loan you've had, every credit card, they know my daughter's name, the color of my car, my VIN number. They know every piece of sensitive information on you. And then it comes to bear at the most impactful moments in your life when you're applying for credit, buying a house, getting a car. And at some point, Congress said, hey, we're going to legislate and regulate that type of data collection. And so they wrote something called the FICRA, the FCRA. And what the FICRA does is it creates rules that say, if you collect this type of information, you have to show people once a year for free the information you've collected on them. And you have to give them the opportunity to object to information and update that information. You have to have a forum to respond to those objections. We already do that. And so it's hard to imagine the least sensitive type of information being regulated in any way more than the most sensitive type of information coming to bear at the most impactful moments. So we have our classic kind of last questions here, lessons for builders, lessons for investors, and then places for further study, all as it relates to kind of the Zoom info story. So let's just take them one at a time. So when you think about your last 14 years, what are the lessons for builders? Biggest lesson I have for builders is be a salesperson, be in front of your clients. I carried it back for the first six years of Zoom Info. And I don't think it's enough to listen to calls that are recorded when you're a builder. I think being in the shoes of a seller, actually selling your product to customers and then hearing their feedback, negative, mainly negative, gives you clarity of thought and clarity of strategy in a way that being a passive participant in that moment doesn't. And so I would say, carry a bag, sell the product, be in front of customers. Yeah, I love that. Lessons for investors? Understand the end user of the company and don't underestimate a great go-to-market motion. Is that the thing you think people most misunderstand about Zoom Info, most investors? I think they don't appreciate how big the end user market is, how underinvested it is and how very few companies are investing in in the salesperson. And then I think the second piece is, and it's more for private investors, is there were points, I would have never admitted in the moment, but there were points in the history of the business where we had a worst product. We had a worse product, but we were still winning more. And it's because we had a better go-to-market motion. We laid out a vision better. And so go-to-market motions can win the day. If someone gets super excited listening to this and wants to go learn more about Zoom Info and the broader market, where would you guide them? Yeah. So if you're really interested in data and data as a service businesses, there's a podcast that's put on by a guy named Oren Hoffman, who's the CEO of SafeGraph, which is called The World of DAS, where there's really interesting data-specific CEOs on. So I would say that's a pretty good one if you're focused on data. Awesome. 
Well, Henry, this was a super awesome episode. I'm super excited about it. And thank you so much for coming on Business Breakdowns. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jesse. I hope you enjoyed this business breakdown of Zoom Info. I love the idea that selling a sales-based product to a salesperson really speeds up the sales cycle. It's a stark contrast to the sales process of a product like Invisalign, where the product requires convincing orthodontists of its efficacy. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend you check out the business breakdown of Invisalign as a nice contrast. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 